I'm going to go ahead and push that in and see if that'll work. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, that's, it says we're live. So we're in, let me write that down. Psalm 113, PSA LM 113, verse. Uh, I'm sorry, 119, verse 113. 113, that's where we're in right now. And uh, then we'll get into Romans. And, go ahead. Okay. Semek, which is a thorn, grab, hate, protect. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not, do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the world you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. Mm. Heavenly Father, it is so good to be in your presence once again and to... Uh, we're always in your presence, but to be in your presence in this Bible class once again and to... Uh, sharing your word and to open it up and to just revel in it and uh, we thank you for the book of romans and for the whole bible what a treasure what a gift you have given us lord we uh, thank you for the people that are here thank you for those that may be attending online and uh we say hello to them and uh, lord we pray for those that are going through their own trials and their own tribulations whoever they are and wherever they are lots of them this week that have been sent to me and uh, some of them are absolutely debilitating and you're aware of each and every one of them lord and we would ask that you would be with these people and help them in their hearts and in their bodies and in their uh, troubles and uh, lord once again we just thank you for this word we we commit this uh, class to you and we pray that uh, what we speak about in your word will be proper will be uh, glorifying of you and uh, we just we praise you jesus we love you and we praise you amen 40 Tim Boone wouldn't like a Jim's reading at 114. What's that? It didn't oh, yeah. Hide, it, it didn't say hiding place. Right, right, right. Yeah, this one is, you were my hiding place and my shield. That one says you're my refuge or something. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Corey Ten Boom. How far did we get last week? Um, we've got a verse. So we're in first, uh, Romans 121. But we'll get a couple more today. It'll go a little bit quicker. But before, before uh, you get started, I'm going to walk over to uh, our... Two new brothers here, and um, I can't tell you where these are from because it's uh, from a missionary that's visiting. That um, uh, she goes to a classified country. They wanted us to have the whole. No, 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 no! Don't, don't do that. I got a hand them at it church too. But uh, there you go. And uh, yeah, don't don't do that. I, I was supposed to hand them out in church last week. I told her I would, and I forgot. But anyway, it's chocolate from a classified country, and she's back visiting. And uh, so uh, she'll be here eventually, and you can thank her in person. But uh, she wanted to make sure that we got these out. So uh, anyway, there you go. Now we're in Romans uh, 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Yep. Okay. T uh, talking about uh, people that aren't here, Dale's not here. Is he okay? Anybody heard from Dale? Okay. I hope he's all right. And uh, Your mom? she should be here. She's always late. So anyway, um, okay, their feudal hearts. Let me read it from the New King James Version as well. Because they also knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but 
became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. All right, I'll give you my thoughts and uh, we can talk about it if you have some questions. In this one verse is a sequence of events which shows us the depraved state of man as he spirals downward and away from God. First, man knows God. It is undeniable and it is self-evident. We've talked about that in a couple other classes. We can't hide the fact that we know that God is there. Uh, Paul treats the uh, words, although they knew God, as an axiom. Okay, When he says that, he's saying, although they knew God. He's taking as an axiom that every person on this earth knows that he exists. Okay, And uh, once again, atheists claim that they deny God. They don't. First thing that happens, and I've asked this a million times, was the first some thing somebody says when their child gets run over? Oh, God, right? It, it's it, it, it universally in us, and they know it. And, uh, of course, then they blame the God that they don't believe in for all their problems, right? So, anyway, he takes it as an axiom. There is no valid argument against his existence, and yet the arguments come. And that's an important point to remember, is that uh, uh, we have arguments for God. If you watch the movie, which is over there, God is not dead and God is not dead too, they kind of go into some of the philosophical and logical arguments as to why there is a God. We've done it in the class in the past. And um, atheists have their own supposed arguments for why there is no God. But none of them are valid. They have to use circular reasoning. They have to argue against themselves. Uh, it, it, there's just no way to do it. And once again, you can't prove that there's a God by an argument. But... It's logically the obvious thing. You just, we're here. The fact that we're here means that something put us into existence and it didn't create itself. And as I said, if the universe uh, created itself, then it would have had to have existed before it existed. Logical contradiction. Something created this universe. The Bible explains who it is and how he did it, to some extent. Um, okay, so um, the Bible says when they do this, when they argue against his existence, even though the argument is invalid, they do it, uh, the Bible says that when they do it, it is the fool who presents them. And that takes us to, uh, anybody know which psalm says that? Who was that in his heart? No That's correct. Which psalm is that? <laughs> no, it's Psalm 14, and guess what? It's also in Psalm 53. So we're going to go to Psalm uh, 14, verse 1. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is no one who does good. Okay, when we get to, and we're going to get to it in the book of Romans, we're going to get to the verse where it says there is none who does good, no, not one. And that is where people will use that and say, see, we, uh, uh, we have to be regenerated in order to believe. And I'm getting way ahead, but that is the standard somebody like R.C. Sproul would say, is that we are regenerated in order to believe because there's no good in us and we cannot choose the good. Everybody understand that argument? It's R.C. Sproul's argument. What is the context of the verse where it says there is none who does good, no, not one? No, it's the, the verse we just read, Psalm 14, 1. And who is he speaking of? No, he's speaking of the atheist. The fool says in his heart there is no good. David could not have written those words if he was included in those words. Do you understand that? David wrote, the, the fool says in his heart there is no good, and he says there are um, uh, corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. Well, he couldn't have written those words if he knew there was no good in him. Right? And even if there is no good in us, which there is, but even if there was no good, it doesn't mean that we can't see the good in God. 
So I'm getting ahead of myself on that, but I want you to understand context is king in the Bible. And for somebody to take a verse out of Romans and say, see, we can't believe in God or we, we can't trust God for our salvation because uh, uh, there's none who does good, and that's what Paul says in Romans, they have to go back and look at the context. And they do it with every other verse except the ones that don't fit their preconceived theology. We'll go to Psalm 53, just because I said it's twice in the Bible. Once again, this is to the chief musician. It's a contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Once again, he's speaking of the atheist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay? And um, he also goes on in verse 2, and he talks about the same thing, and he talks about them turning aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So inherently we are corrupt, inherently we do not do good, but that doesn't mean that the people were not taken out of the covenant people, they were redeemed by God, and there were people that are declared what in Hebrews chapter 11? Right, righteous people of faith, people of faith. Well, how do you get faith? Is it injected into you externally, or do you, is it something you exercise? That's the question. Well, the context of that verse says he's speaking of a category of people that have turned away from God. Hello, how are you? Um, okay, so uh, that's the first premise. The second premise, the first one was man knows God. The second one, man fails to give God the glory that he is due. That's something that I do pretty much every minute of my life, and I hope that you will admit the same. We, we stray away from giving God the glory that he is due. But in general, there are people that do it much more than others. Okay, with his innate knowledge of God, man should turn and give him the glory. We have it in our heart. We should say, there is a being out there that created us, and we should be giving him glory. He says, I exist, and it was because of the goodness of God that I am here. Okay, Glory be to the one who created me and gave me life. That's what we should be doing. Instead, though, we trudge through life in the pursuit of vanity. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes and see if you fit into that category, or if you ever did. Never stopping to simply thank him or praise him for life, for beauty, for food, joy, love, blessing. Darkness covers the light that we should perceive. And that's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let me read that to you. So, while I'm looking for that, I will say, as a reminder to people, when we are in the um, projects every week, and Jim, I'll, I'll let him tell you after I read this verse, uh, Ecclesiastes 2, I think it's verse 14, I said, um, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. He gave us labor. He gave us good things. He gives us food, and we should be thanking him for it. As a matter of fact, the oldest psalm in the Bible, uh, what is it, the 90th psalm, Moses wrote, and the last thing he says there, so you, let me read it to you. Psalm 90. I think it's verse 14, if I remember, but maybe not. Um, psalm 90, uh, 17. And the, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Even the work of our hands is something that is a gift from God. Um, what is it that we say in almost every one of our prayers when we pray in the projects on the same subject? <laughs> you pick the right one to ask that because it's like they always have needs and wants, which obviously if it's within God's will, we pray for it. Right. And when it happens... Thank God, profusely. 
That's right. We don't know if they do because we're not there, but every single week when we say a prayer with these people, we remind them, we're praying for God to give you something, whether it's relief from a financial problem or whether it's health for their mother that's in the hospital, whatever. And we always say, Lord, give these people the wisdom when this comes about to thank you for it. And people need to be reminded of that. And they need to have it reminded of them often. And eventually, it becomes a part of your nature. Nothing comes easily in life, whether it's praising God or whether it's thanking God or whether it's, you know, starting a new job. When you start a new job, what do you do? You go home and you're really tired because you have to learn things. It takes time to learn things. It takes time to learn how to pray. It takes time to learn how to stop and to thank God for the things that happen. But once you've learned it, it becomes a part of your nature. And this is what he's writing about. People don't do that. Instead, they turn away from God. So this leads us to the next depraved step. Man knows God first. Man fails to give God the glory that he is due. The third, the natural result of failing to glorify God is a state of ingratitude. And boy, do we see that in America right now. Unbelievable. We have been given so many blessings in this nation, and we are utterly ungrateful for it. We think that we deserve everything that we have. Last night is a classic example, the old Luton shoot. I deserve this. I'm going to go out and I'm going to steal from all of these people. I'm going to take everything that I want because I deserve it. It has nothing to do with somebody getting shot. It's as clear as could be that that guy was shot. He had a gun in his hand. They know that. They don't even wait for the facts to come out, but they think, I deserve this. I'm in a pitiful situation. I'm going to find a reason to exercise my ingratitude. And that's what people do. Paul says, nor were they thankful, right? If you put someone on welfare because of a lost job, they will first think, I'm so thankful. I'll be able to eat next week, right? That's the first thing. I've seen people that had to go into welfare, and they're thankful for it. But what happens? Very, very quickly, what was given as a temporary fix becomes expected and even demanded. And we see it every week down there. They're cutting me back $5 a week. I can't believe it. Like they're entitled to something. They're not entitled to anything. They are under obligation, according to the Bible. If you do not work, you do not eat. That's right. But all of a sudden, and I'm talking about people that are physically fit. I'm not talking about the old ladies that are sitting there that can't hardly get out of their chair. Society is supposed to help those people and Christians in general, but that's being pushed out. The government takes over and all of a sudden it becomes an entitlement. And everybody is entitled to it. And if you cut it back even a little bit, they go crazy. And if you give them more, they think, well, they should have given me more earlier. There's no winning when you're on welfare. None. I want you to know that. So um, uh, they, it becomes expected. It becomes even demanded. If you don't believe this, oh, perfect example. Go do mission work for a short time. People, out of the goodness of their hearts, set up kitchens to feed the inner city poor. I saw that when I went to uh, around the States in 2010. It preached at the capitals. I stopped in St. Louis. Actually, it was uh, on the other side. What's the state over there? Um, uh, Illinois. Illinois. And that's where the people lived. And uh, they uh, uh, had a church uh, that had mission work in St. Louis. And they'd go every week and they would feed these people. They went down under the arches and they fed people that were living under the arches along the river. And it became expected. And the people had no sense of gratitude. It's like why didn't you come last week? Well, we didn't get food or something. It, it, it's, it's an entitlement when they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. You see this happen with, um, I hate to say it, but you, you see this happen with the Muslims a lot. These people go over, remember uh, a couple of years back where the uh, two nuns that were there, they'd spent their whole life there ministering those people. And they shot them, right? 
It's like biting the hand that feeds you. And they do this all the time. This is all over the world. People that are giving, they're willing to give of themselves, and all of a sudden it becomes an entitlement. And we see it every week, don't we? Last week, I will tell you, I, I can't tell you the circumstances, but somebody came uh, to, with us that uh, happened to be here from another country, and she brought uh, certain things for certain people that she was going around that she knew from having gone around with us in the past. All right, She had a bag full of them, and she had some extra ones. And she gave one to one of the per people that she brought it back for. And within a second, everybody's demanding them of her, literally demanding. And when she didn't give her one, because she says, I have other friends that I'm giving these to, they were upset, weren't they? They were literally upset that they would not be given something, which isn't theirs anyway. They didn't deserve it. There's, you know, She's bringing these as a gift. But once you hand somebody something, we get this all the time. This is the attitude. And this is what I'm trying to tell you, what Paul is saying about our relationship with God. I'm using personal examples of human beings but this is how we are towards God. Hello, how are you today? Um, so, um, ingratitude. Like I said, I'm giving you examples that you can understand, but this is how human nature is Here's towards... Here's a sad example. My neighbor. Yes. Moved, but, uh, he had this horrendous cancer that was, it looked like he was going to check out. With right. And, um, so, his wife would, would endlessly be asking me to pray for... Her. Yes. And I was like, you know, and I'm... Facebook, you know, writing these like, elaborate prayers to try and like, you know, build them God up for 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 healing with them, and um, you know, and then she called me out of the blue and stuff like that. Could you please pray again? I was like, yeah. sure, no problem. Then, like you know, and, and you know, we had so miraculously, he made a hundred percent recovery. Wow! So I figured, let's go down and talk about this a little bit further. And yeah. I, I, I was never shut down quicker. Oh. I like, have that I, happen. I don't believe that nonsense. all the time. It's like, what you ask me? In the all place. the time, I have that happen. Like, you know, you, when you needed it, it yep. was there. Like, I, I bet. Yeah, I get ten or twelve emails a week from people that ask me to pray for them. Mm -hmm. They won't step foot in church. They they want nothing to do with it. And as soon as they're oh. healed, it is they, they completely forget well, it. it. Back it, to it, the life they were living. Like stepping into church and, and, and changing your life, but like you know, just basically. Yeah, yeah just to even say, listen. Say, it's all a bunch of nonsense. It could have been the white light that I asked so and so to. Sure. Like, you know, so why'd you ask me to pray? Like, yeah, it's like, well, then but this is what that—that that is exactly what Paul is speaking about. Mm -hmm. Is that they deny God mm -hmm. and then they're ungrateful to Him. So yeah. there's this lot, and he went through all all the steps with his with his sickness and getting his wife. Right. Right. That that's exactly right. So um, very quickly, what was a temporary fix becomes expected and even demanded. Like I said. Um, uh, however, the recipient's appreciation quickly fades, and eventually the thought that they are entitled to free meals sets in. That's, like I said, what happened over in, in um, St. Louis with these people that are doing that. Strict rules have to be set in place, or fighting an outburst of immense selfishness arises. We used to see that at Gifts from God ministry, which you, you weren't going out with us when they were open, but that's where we first met. We would meet at Gifts for God in, uh, Ministries, that, that building over on 18th mm -hmm. Street, and then we'd walk all the way to the projects. And they would have weekly food distributions. You know, if the mayor feed the hungry would bring food or um, at uh, uh, Thanksgiving turkeys. And I'm going to tell you, I've never seen people so greedy. They would go in and they grab five turkeys and they'd run out the door. And it, 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 unbelievable. Unbelievable. You could say, please, you know, everybody just take one turkey, and they, they, they would fight over them, and it's something that isn't even theirs yet. They don't deserve it. It's grace. This is 
once again, these are human examples of how we are towards God, and your friend was a perfect example of that. There, you pray for somebody, and the next thing you know, they don't want to talk to you anymore until the ball drops in their life again. Next thing you know, they're asking for prayer again. Does it, Paul? I mean, Tom, you know that kiss from God. Remember that? Oh, yeah. It's just unbelievable. He was there from the very beginning, from the day they opened their doors. He saw it all the time, and then I came a year after he did. The problem, well, okay, we're getting into probably a little bit off key here with that. But basically, it's like when you have all of the goods in one spot, that's where everyone's eyes gets bigger. Right. Because I, in my first church over in West Palm Beach, every Thanksgiving they would just say, "Okay, great, you are bringing this Thanksgiving dinner to that family." Right. And you would go there and knock on the door, and and let me tell you what. If you want to talk about grateful people, oh yeah, it was like it, it was like uh, we were in tears. We're leaving the place. I'm like going like this is like this know. is so wonderful. But if you knew their neighbors and you took it to their neighbor mm-hmm. and not to them, because we've seen that happen, we see that haven't we? We've seen that happen three favorite, times in just the past couple months. So, friends. so, so like, that, but you're talking about all in one place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but my point is that America is all one place, <laughs> and here we've gotten these blessings. And we've completely shut out God. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Oh, Just yeah. because it's a human example mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it doesn't pertain exactly the national same on a national thing. level. Or on a, okay, go ahead. Is there a teaching moment? In other words, like when this occurs, could we as Christians say something? Oh, it's, you know what? Remember when I did say something? And you know this. You know who I'm talking about. And it doesn't do any good. People that are ungrateful will be ungrateful. And that's how we are. And I'm once again, we're applying this to individuals, but when we take it on a human level, anybody that is turned away from God, and that's what Paul is writing about. He's writing about a sequence of events, but you know that. So, yeah, I don't think there's any teaching uh, a moment for people until they realize the significance of their sin. And how does that happen? I will tell you how I think. I'm not even to point four yet, but I we got point five too, so we got a ways to go. But I will tell you this is that when, I said the ball drops individually, but when the ball drops in this nation, and it's going to be sooner rather than later, I think, people will suddenly have this great revival in their their homes, and they're going to be going to their churches. And I know this because in 9-11, I went to that church. It it was a Methodist church because I just met the, the Lord a while before. And I was sitting there in this church every single week. And the only reason I went to that church is because that's where my neighbor, uh, uh, happened to go at the time and so I thought well I'll go there and so I was going to this Methodist church and there might have been in a church that could hold 500 people there might have been 220 people every week it wasn't ever full 9-11 the next Sunday that Sunday that church was packed completely because people suddenly realized oh my goodness right the next week it was that way the third week and the fourth week and then after that everything started tapering off and we were back down to the same numbers because the guy didn't preach the gospel they didn't preach anything about the Bible. It was these sappy sermons. But I, I, I read the uh, the uh, stats of the churches in New York City oh, yeah. that had the great swelling of people. And the ones that preached the gospel, the numbers never went back down. All the other churches said we had this great rise and it went back down. Well, what do you preach? And they said, well, this is our doctrine. And they, they did a study. The gospel churches retained all of their people because the people heard you are responsible for what happened. Roman stuff, 
right here. And then people do have a revival when the ball drops. But until it does, unfortunately, that guy didn't have a change of heart. But on a national level, it's going to happen again. And when it does, the churches are going to swell. And people are going to be emailing pastors asking why this happened. And if the pastor gives one of these gushy answers, three weeks later, he's not going to have anybody else in his church again. But if he gives the true answers, the chances are that the people will turn their hearts to the Lord. So it all comes down to that gratitude. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, four. <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm not on four yet. Um, I'm in the middle of a thought here. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Okay, if we treat those that we can see in this manner, keeping them from strict out, uh, outbursts and fighting over the food and everything, if we can see uh, in this manner, how much more the God we can't see and who we never gave a second thought to anyway. This ingratitude leads to the next step downward. In other words, what I'm saying is, we have people that are taking turkeys to a place, and there's all of this ingratitude, and there's all of this fighting over who's gonna get the turkey first, right? And there's enough for everybody, but they, they fight. If they treat the people that are giving them this grace that way, how much more are people going to treat God who they can't see in the same way? You see what I'm saying? That's my logical. So the next logical step after that the result, so you've got man knows God, man fails to give God glory, and then he becomes in, uh, in, ingrate, okay? Mm -hmm. The next, the final result of ingratitude is futility in thinking. That's what Paul says. The word here is dialogismas, okay? If you hear the word logisma, Watch. yeah, okay, there you go. A word which indicates the inward contemplations and reasoning of man, just like logic, okay? Um, in other words, this is a state of rationalism about who we are, why we are here, the nature or even the existence of God, and so on. The ungrateful naturally rationalize away their ingratitude. They're ingrateful, and they rationalize it away. I deserve this. I'm the center of the universe. There is no God. I have a right to do the things I'm doing. And boy, societally, we are right there in this nation, completely. Everything revolves around us. We deserve everything. Okay? Um, uh, they are self-absorbed, and they are so inwardly motivated to create a God in their own mind. They know what they have is undeserved, but they also know that by acknowledging the true God, they are actually accountable to Him. If you say there's a God, then you know you're accountable to Him. So, you say you know a God, you know He's there, you fail to give him the glory he's due, you're ungrateful, and then you say, the next thing you get your futility in thinking. How can I be ungrateful if there's no God? And so by acknowledging him, they acknowledge that their ingrateful or ungratefulness is wrong. Okay, they're self-absorbed, they're so inwardly motivated, oh, I said that, um, they know what they have is undeserved, but they also know that by acknowledging that same true God, which I just said, they are actually accountable to him, and so they turn to any God that will suit their state at the moment. They begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. Okay, you see the logical step, the progression, what Paul is saying about, let me get a pen here really quickly. I want to make a note on this and uh, something I want to, I want to make it, whoops, I just tore the Bible. Done, got it. It's just a small one, but I hate doing that. Okay, I'm sorry about that. I just want to make a little note there. Um, anyway, so yes, they, inevitably you're going to start worshiping the creature rather than the creator because you can't be ungrateful to a creature, right? 
you know that it's not a God, and so there's no no longer any reason to be uh, ingrateful and have anything in your heart that says, well, I'm being wrong by being ingrateful. Okay, that brings us to point five. Because of the logical progression away from God, Paul says that they are their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, you see the steps, one after another, to the point where their foolish hearts are darkened. This is a state of complete spiritual blindness. However, man in his most depraved state will often appear to be the most enlightened. Think of Stephen Hawking's. The guy is completely depraved in his thinking about God, and yet he says he's the most enlightened guy on the planet. Okay? That's what happens to people. They think, well, I can think beyond a creator. And so I'm enlightened, and they start coming up with all of these vain philosophies, and that's what Paul is writing about once again. Their foolish hearts are darkened. The intellectual elite and the greats of the world religions are often the most depraved people. Peter speaks of people who have reached this state of spiritual darkness. They deny what is spiritually correct while espousing utter falsities about God, the natural order, and right reason. He labels these types brute beasts, or as the uh, uh, NIV translates it, unreasoning animals. That's what Peter calls them, okay? They are unreasoning animals who have lost all right sense and follow only the basis instincts, which is 2 Peter 2. It's just a logical progression. If you just think it through and you look at the people around you in the world, who are, and I hate to introduce politics here, but who are the most corrupt people in the nation? Clinton. There you go, people on the left, whether it's the Clintons or whether it's the Obamas of the world, they think that they're intellectually superior above everybody else, the college professors, and yet they're the ones that are the most wicked. They're doing the things that are absolutely corrupt, and they say they're the perfect example of what Isaiah says. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Trade light for darkness and darkness for light. Bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Okay, that's exactly what they do. They stand up and they say that people that are morally right, that don't believe in abortion, murdering a human life before it comes out of the mother's womb, they say that they're depraved. And they find every reason to say something like that when what they're doing is so utterly vile. Okay, 2 Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 12, says, um, But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak, made to be caught and destroyed. They would not like that said about them up in Washington, D.C. right now. But this is what Peter has said about these type of people, that they are they should be caught and destroyed. And I'm not saying that so they can't come and arrest me. I'm just simply saying that this is what the Bible proclaims about people like that. They're made to be caught and destroyed. Um, uh, they speak evil of the things they do not understand and will, uh, will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Sounds like the, the modern LGBT movement being perpetrated on the citizens of the world by England, by Canada, by America, by the leaders of countries that once would have called these things a shame, a complete shame. They're, they do it out in the open now. Um, they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and uh, that cannot cease from sin. Boy, does that not sound like the world of today. They, they can't cease from sin. They condone things like the burning man thing that's going on out in the desert in uh, Nevada, right? But they say that if you pray to God in an assembly of your city council, that you should be arrested. It is unreal 
how accurate the Bible was. It was written 2,000 years ago when people hardly had TV. They hardly, I mean, hardly had any way of communicating. They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. They didn't have a knowledge of what was going on in the deep recesses of the, the, the leadership in Rome. And yet he understood that this was the nature of human beings. And it perfectly picks out every single government where it eventually ends. Always, always the same. It says um, um, that they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Is that just wonderful stuff? Okay, I, just the fact that they can, they can pull this out of the human heart and they can understand that and write these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The people that Paul speaks of and who are described by Peter fill the halls of religion around the world, including Christianity. All you need is one week's prophecy update and you're going to see that. What was it last week? Um, uh, Australia. The Anglican Church in Australia. What did they do? They said, well, you need to vote your conscience on the gay issue. That's, that's what they say. You need to vote your conscience. So you don't go by what this says anymore, and they have their own book of discipline like the Methodists have and all of these other big denominations. So they say that the book of discipline, which can be amended, the word of God cannot be amended. The book of discipline, you need to vote your conscience on it, right? This is the Anglican Church of Australia, which falls under the Anglican Church of England, which used to be this great uh, religious organization that when you were ordained, they put the Bible in their hand and they said, you are now commissioned to go out and preach the gospel to the people of the world. It was an honor to do that. Now the gospel is never even mentioned. It's not even brought up. It's just people making stuff up as they go, shaking their fist in God's face, and it is all over Christianity. It literally permeates it. Denominations are ordaining homosexuals, mixing false religion with the truth, and pursuing money and fame rather than righteousness. In the verses ahead, Paul will continue to explain these things, all of which are to remind us that God is just in his wrath and indignation. He is just. He has a right to do what he does. He is sovereign over all things, and when those people stand before him and he condemns them, they can't say, I was a preacher of the gospel for 20 years or 30 years or whatever. It's going to say, you didn't preach any gospel. You led people away from me, not to me. And it's, it, it's terrible. It's terrible to think that somebody is so deluded in their own mind that they think that they will be able to stand before God and receive a well done from him. Imagine that. Yeah. Okay, a little life application. We are either moving toward God in holiness or away from him into a state of depravity and spiritual darkness. It's one or the other, and it's always that way. When you get up in the morning, you're either going to be moving towards God or away from him. And every moment, you have to mentally continue to move towards God or you're moving away. There's no static with God. There's no static. When you are dealing in your mind and in the things you do during the day, you're either moving towards God or away from him. Most people just keep moving in one direction. You know, if you're like me, I'm moving towards the Lord and then I next thing you know, I've got something on my mind and I'm moving away from him, right? It just is back and forth because... We're human beings. We're creatures that that are being attacked by our senses. But the the general principle is that people are either moving towards the Lord, you know, one step forward and uh, two steps forward and one step back, or they're going away from the Lord, two steps back and then one step forward, or just two steps back and two steps back. That's the general way of the people of the world. So hopefully, I have more steps towards the Lord than away from Him. But we're all either going towards Him or or back. So um. There is no static state in our relationship with God, and therefore we need to continually strive to glorify Him and to be thankful to Him.
Okay, be thankful to God. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to get you guys to join in with me. Any questions on verse 21? Yes. Not a question. Not a question. You got a. I saw you had that up. I saw he was waiting to read this. Go ahead. <laughs> Striking illustration of man's modern heathenism expresses itself in atheism comes out of a development in the field of molecular biology. Ah. Scientists working in his field feel they have discovered some of the basic secrets of life itself. Hmm. Working with dexo-ribonucleic acid, whatever. DNA. Is that what that yes. is? Yes. Scientists are unfolding the basic generic pattern that shapes every living thing on Earth. Some concepts involved are almost unbelievably complex. Yep. Despite this, one British scientist made the statement, seems pretty certain to me that life resulted from purely chemical results. Yep. What's more, I feel certain in another decade or two, we'll be able to create life. Create life. I no longer find it necessary to believe in yeah, and that was the guys that, that found DNA, uh, Crick and what were their names? Funny names. Uh, anyway, I, I don't remember, but it was probably one of them that said that. Here they're doing all these studies after finding the DNA strand and breaking it down. And, oh, yeah, we don't need God anymore. Now they're finding even more complex things. So it's it's well, so complex. I, I God will keep it away. That, yeah, that's, it, it is so complex that every time they it think is. they found what they need, God, it just becomes more complex. Like, yeah. right. If you ever it proves that you cannot have any evolution. Like no, impossible. Yeah, if you want to see, uh, go online and you know you can watch YouTube videos about how RNA, um, uh, which is part of the DNA strand, single strand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, how they multiply, how they, it, it is astonishing. And there is no way that this could happen by chance. There's no way. But go on, just type it in. How does uh, uh, RNA multiply? And they do this. Uh, this uh, video, you know, showing it, it, it is astonishing. And that's just one little thing that we figured out, and there's so much more behind that. A astonishing stuff. So anyway, um, uh, 122. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. That's where mine ends. Your... Okay, I'm going to let you know right now. I was on the wrong page. Uh, yeah, professing to be wise, they became fools. So nice short verse there. Um, a nice short commentary, too. Um, Paul is continuing to build on the thought of the previous verse. Those who innately know that there is a God, but who fail to glorify him and give uh, him thanks, then become futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the previous verse. In this spiritually deadened state, they profess themselves to be wise, which is like we talked about, all of these philosophers and all of these professors. And, yeah, yeah, exactly what he just read. They profess to be wise, but it, it's so utterly foolish. It's like the, the climate change deba debate, or it's the, uh, the uh, it, 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 everything they do. Everything they do is skewed away from God. Anyway, the word uh, wise is translated from sophoi. Anybody? Same as the name, so, well, sophomore, that's right, but uh, Sophia, I'm thinking of the name Sophia, but you're right, sophomore, so the, the, the wise young ones, Okay, it's translated from Sophoi. Um, and so when you know somebody named, that's why I like to know the origins of names, especially in the Bible, because I, you always meet people, and how do you introduce them to the gospel without being overt? And I always, if I know their name and where it came from in the Bible, I will say, oh, do you know that that name means? And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. 
And I say, yeah, that's from a Hebrew word that means this, or that's from a Greek word that means that. So if you meet somebody named Sophia, then you can say, I know where that comes from. That comes from the word uh, sophoi uh, in the Bible. It means wise or wisdom, right? So there you go. Um, so uh, it is wisdom that would be ascribed to the intellectually and culturally sophisticated people of the Greek civilization. These would then be the religious and intellectual cream of the crop. However, without directing their attention to the truth about God, which is as simple and easy to understand as looking up and knowing that the universe didn't create itself, then they became fools. Okay? The single word for they became fools, it's a, it's a uh, long word, but I hope you'll get the, uh, the root of it. It's imoranthesan. Moron. The moron, that's right. And yes, the fool portion is the source of our modern word moron. Okay? It's almost comedic to think about these people and then they now strut around. They're professing either religious or intellectual superiority and yet God's word calls them morons. Yep. But the stupidity of their arguments proves the title. So it's kind of like this 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 pun thing that's going on in the pages of the Bible where all these people think that they're the cream of the crop and yet they're just they're just morons. In uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks to these elite when he addresses the Areopagus. It was an open-air forum where all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear something new. Okay, Paul walked into the center of this vast stadium and he told them of the new thing in his life, which was from the creation of the world. In his short discourse, and we went, took us a while to get through Paul's discourse in uh, Acts 17, he actually quoted two of their philosophers, Erastus and Epimenides, using their own contemplations to demonstrate what he has thus far been saying in Romans, that we innately know certain things about God. So he was able to take their writings by their, uh, their philosophers, and he does it a couple other times in the New Testament, and he uses them to show that these people could think these things through, their own authors. Uh, what does it say? In him we live and move and have our being. It was speaking of not the true God, but it was the name of a God. The principle was there that there is a God in which we live and move and have our being, right? He said that and he said something else. Oh, for we also are his offspring, it said. Acts chapter 17 uses two of their people to show that these things are true, okay? He also uses another one. I think it's in the book of Titus, if I can remember this really quickly. Um, uh, speaking of the people from Crete, all Cretans are liars. Okay, where is that? That's Titus, isn't it? Okay. And does anybody know who wrote that? He's quoting uh, somebody. I, he says it, it. It is. Oh, here it is. It says some. Um, uh, one of them, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and la lazy gluttons. Who said that? Mm -hmm. Epimenides, right? It's called the Epimenides Paradox. Why? Because if a Cretan says that all Cretans are liars, then what does that mean? <laughs> that he's a liar, and therefore he's telling the truth. And so it's a paradox. <laughs> you, you there's no answer to it. And he uses the Epimenides Paradox to make a point about what we should know and what we should logically deduce. Okay, if I said that all Garrets are liars, that would mean I have to be telling the truth, but I'm a Garrett and therefore I'm a liar, and so, right, you see? Okay. Um, never say all. What? Never say all. Never say all. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with Garrets. Um, 
because there's got to be one good one out there somewhere. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's, um, uh, let's see here. In both Old Testament and New, as is highlighted in Acts chapter 17, man sets up idols, which are a part of creation, wood, stone, gold, or whatever, bowing to them and giving them credit for the good stuff that happens in life. Paul says that these people have become foolish because of such things. And so, and we do it all the time. We ascribe, we may not have a God of golden, but we do. I know this, I had that store down there when I was, uh, uh, before I met the Lord. And I, you know, would go to Asia and I'd buy things and I'd sell them. And um, I had uh, people come in, some friends of mine, I hate to even say it, but uh, they're Jewish. And uh, they came in and they said, oh, this place is so spiritual. And I had already met the Lord by then, and I'm like getting ready to, to close this business because I'm just getting to the point where I can't even sell stuff anymore. And he walked over, and there was a wooden Buddha over there. And he says, he says, I can feel the spirit in this. And I thought, you know, and then I've got these little Buddhas that are made out of plastic, and I think you know, somebody went into a mold, and out comes this Buddha. And because it's a certain shape, it suddenly has a spirit. You know what I mean? If you think it through, it's just plastic. I mean, we don't bow down to our cup. You know, oh, this cup is wonderful. You know, we just don't do it. But we, we, we delude ourselves. Mm. And I take a piece of a tree, and where is it? He speaks of that in uh, Isaiah, what? Yeah, I was going to say, it's, I think it's 44. He says it. Uh, let me see if I can find that. This perfect example of this. Um, let's see here. It's perfect. I, I read this. Um, yeah, here it is right here. It's Isaiah 44, and we're going to start with... Um, Verse 9, I'm just going to read this. And you can see people logically denying the Creator and instead coming to a conclusion, a wrong conclusion about a piece of wood. Here we go. Uh, Isaiah 44, uh, I'm going to start back a little bit, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? In other words, who has the gift of pr predictive prophecy? Right? then I uh, let him declare it and set it in order for me. If that little piece of wood can do it, let him do it. Prove it to me, right? Since I appointed the ancient people, um, and I'm gonna, I'm, well, no, I'm just gonna go ahead and keep going. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. This is the God saying, you got one chance there, guys. Here it is, verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Now, an intellectual person, like the guy that talked about the DNA, has made an idol of his mind. Okay? He, he instead of a tree... His mind is his idol. I'm smarter than God. He's just going to use a piece of wood instead of the mind. But any idol will do the same thing. Okay, he goes on. Um, verse 10. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they're mere men. Okay, so he's saying that a man is creating a, or I hate the word creating, but he's, he's making an idol. Well, if he's making it, then the idol has to be less than what he is. That's the point he's making. He says, um, uh, and uh, the workmen, they are mere men. The guys that are making this thing are men, okay? Uh, let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. And then he goes into the process of making it. He says, the blacksmith with the tongs 
works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with his, the strength of his arms. Well, if he's using his arms to make it, then it has to be weaker than him because he's the one that's fashioning it. All right. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So he's working on his little idol, right? And he's getting tired. Let's go on. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man. According to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. Keep thinking of what Paul is writing about people getting deluded. All right, he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. So God created the pine. He created the ground that the pine goes into. He created the rain that nourishes the pine. He created the man that planted the pine. Everything about it comes from God. And yet he's going through a process of what this person is doing. He says, um, then it shall be for a man to burn. So he's cut down a tree and he says, well, I can burn this thing, right? Uh, for he will take some of it and he'll warm himself. So you got a tree and you, you're cutting it down and you have chips of wood, right? And so you say, I'm going to take this little bit of these chips of wood and I'm going to put them over here and I'm going to start a little fire. You have to have the small stuff first, right? So you, uh, uh, he takes uh, some of it and he warms himself. Yes, he kindles it and he bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and he worships it. He's making it out of the same tree that he's making these little chips of wood, which he didn't bow down to those, did he? Okay, so, um, indeed, he makes a god and he worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. And he says he burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. And the rest of it he makes into a god. He, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. So he's got a part of his God laying there cooking up coffee and, and donuts or something and he's getting warm off of it and then the other part he's bowing down to after he fashioned it and he says, you're my God. And that's exactly what people used to do in that store of mine. People would say, I'm going to go put this on my altar. When that lady said that to me that day, that was the day I said, I'm done. I'm not selling anything here anymore. I'm closing the store. I went back to wastewater after, you know, how many years of working in wastewater and trying to get out of it. And there I'm going back to wastewater because I don't want to do this anymore. All right? And we knew nobody would bow down to that. Nobody would bow down to the wastewater plant. Although I did. There's a guy up at the city of Sarasota that said he saw God on the clarifier. Oh, my God. Yeah. So let me tell you, people find God in the strangest places. A clarifier is, just so you know, I don't want to confuse you with this, but yeah, your plant and you've got different processes, and you've got what's called waste-activated sludge, which is a sludge that you've already used, and it gets returned back to the beginning of the plant, and you have microorganisms eating the uh, new sewer that comes in, and then it goes into this tank, and it drops in, and it, it's got these things here that they're, uh, 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 they, they, they keep the sludge from billowing up, and the sludge settles down, and then the water goes over the side. It's called weirs. It's like little things here, and the water just very carefully goes over the side. And this is called clarified water because the sludge is taken out. And this is returned once again back to the beginning of the plant. You suck it off the bottom and you keep going back. So you're using this bug all the time. But that's a clarified. God saw, this guy saw God on a clarifier. <laughs> Amazing. Anyway, that's a very simplistic thing. I mean, plants are very complicated organisms, but they're basically what they do is they do what your stomach does in millions of gallons a day. 
and it's very efficient. And when that water leaves those plants, it is amazingly clean. It's better than what you have when it comes out of your tap. And I'm talking about the plant on the key. The ones out here that are land applied, um, uh, they don't have to treat them as much. And so they, they leave in the nitrogen, they leave in the phosphorus, and that is good for the, you know, they reuse it. They put it on like parks and stuff. And that's why all the parks are always real green is because it's got the, the nitrogen and phosphorus and all that in there. Whereas out on the key, it's being discharged into Sarasota Bay. It had to be perfectly clean. And it was, it was like a river of beauty going out of that plant. You would not believe it. Anyway, um, you want to go yeah, through the, the waste? What's that? Get, the homeowners can get that water. Oh, absolutely. And anytime you see purple pipes, when you're driving around Sarasota, you're going to see three different colors of pipes. You've got the green pipes of sewer, the blue is water, and then you've got the purple. And that's standard throughout all the country, but the purple is reused water. You don't want to drink it because it's being land applied. That means it's not highly treated. It's not going to kill you probably, but it is chlorinated, and, um, uh, but that's what that is. And you can have that put in out there. Yeah, well, I don't think they'd allow it on the key, but anyway. Um, so let's go on with this. Uh, now, now, didn't this idolatry begin in Babylon? In well, it began in the human heart right at the beginning. I shall be like God, you know. Yeah. I, the human heart is it, it has always been where idolatry is. But they openly said that. Well, that's that's right. I mean, in Babylon, they have open idolatry, and but I'm saying that idolatry is uh, it is something. I'll get to that in a minute. I haven't finished Isaiah. Oh, okay. um, they do not understand. This is after he says, deliver me, you're my God. He's bowed down to his thing. He says, they do not know or understand, for he shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is their knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it? Of the rest of it, shall I make an abomination? Shall I bow down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Just think of the philosophers. Think of the people in Thailand that are bowing down to those big golden things, you know. Very beautiful to see. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to see all those cultural things, but it is a world of deceit. That's all it is. It's a world of deceit. Um... Uh, you asked about um, uh, Babylon, but what what is the order of the fall? There were three things that that are noted in the fall of man: the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Okay, and what was it that Satan tempted Jesus with? In the same order: the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And what is it that John says in the the? I think it's John or second. John two. John two. Thank you. To John, he says, "The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life." It all stems from there. Yes, idolatry may have taken a tangible form at Babylon, but it's always been there in all ways, right from the very beginning. It is something that we will make anything God except for God, and we will. I want to be like God. Right? And so he ate of the fruit because he says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, he didn't lie. He just misrepresented it. Okay? So the, the idolatry has always been there. Just it's taken on different forms at different times. We have, like I say, we've got the philosophers today. It's the same thing. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and it's the pride of life. That is what every sin on this planet goes down to. One of those three things. But you can see, this is what... He is warning against an Isaiah. He's telling, uh, I'll, I'll 
just real quickly, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And he goes down and he talks about these things. Um, you know, somebody asked me something, I'm, just because I'm in Isaiah right now, I'll get back into Romans in one second. I want to say it's this week or last week I mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago. Last week, okay. I had several people email me. I got a friend that's Jehovah's Witness. I've got family that are Jehovah's Witnesses. And so they said, how do I talk to them? And I kind of gave them some short uh, answers. And uh, in particular, one of them wanted to know about the Trinity. And I said, that's way too big to just send an email. It, it's something they have to have a question and we've got to get into a dialogue. Okay, but what I recommend for people that know Jehovah's Witnesses, unless they're willing to change, most people are just deluded and they're not going to change. You know, R.C. Sproul is never going to change his mind about, you know, regeneration of the spirit. It's just not because he believes it and he's got a presupposition and there's no free will with him. And I'm the opposite. I believe in free will. So there's no change in us in that respect. But if somebody is willing to say, I could be wrong. What I tell people that know Jehovah's Witnesses is to go to the book of Isaiah and to read the book of Isaiah. And every time the Lord makes a claim about himself or something is said about the Lord describing him, highlight it. I am the Lord and there is no other. He said back here. I'm just doing this because a lot of people had questions this week and if two or three asked, then that means there's more people that want to know this. He says um, uh, the Redeemer. Okay, so he's called the, the Redeemer. He says uh, elsewhere in the, uh, the um, uh, Isaiah, he's the rock. He's the, um, uh, he's uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that the Lord, right? Okay, and it, you go through there. Uh, my glory I will not give to another. Every time you see something like that, you tell them to highlight it. And then to go to the New Testament and to simply read it and highlight every time something describes Jesus. And you will see from the book of Isaiah and the book of the New Testament that there is no doubt that the New Testament was written saying he is the fulfillment of who Jehovah of the Old Testament is. If they can't see that, I don't think I can help them with any other answers because it is so clearly, explicitly made known. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what did he say? I will not give my glory to another, right? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so every time somebody looks at what Isaiah says, and it is the Redeemer. What is Jesus called in the New Testament? Right? He's the he's the shepherd. He's just, just do that. And that's what I recommend people do. Didn't mean to get too far off on there, but it's important because people have questions, and a lot of people have family and friends that are stuck in that cult. And unless they're willing to openly and objectively read the Bible and say, I could be wrong, they're going to keep going down that path forever. One question about yes. that. Would that be out of the unchanged? No, you don't even need an unchanged Bible because it's so evident from Isaiah, even, even in the New World Translation. Yeah. Okay. That's right. I would still recommend that they... The, the problem with... And this is something I didn't tell them, but the problem with the New World Translation, which you know about, is that um, they have taught their people that this is the only correct translation of the Bible. When in fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses became Jehovah's Witnesses through which version? KJV. The KJV, right? So how can it be that they got all of this bad knowledge out of the KJV, KJV which now is the Jehovah's Witnesses, and suddenly there's a new translation that's the only correct one? But I will tell you this real quickly. We still have a little more to go, and we've got plenty of time. I, I'll show you how the King James Version translates. Uh, I'm sorry, not that. The um, Jehovah's Witnesses translate 
because this is important to me, and it was important to those people, and they had that question, and we've got a minute, so I'm going to real quickly show you. The Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. Okay, and? Aramaic. That's right, Aramaic. Okay, and then the New Testament is written in what? Greek. Okay, it's Greek. Okay, we all know that. that, that that's indisputable, unless you're one of these Messianic Jews, uh, groups that say, no, it was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Some claim that. Some people will say the Aramaic is the only original version of the Bible, and people will say the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the only original version. Anytime you hear that kind of stuff, they're deluded. But um, one way, I, before I get into the Greek for Jehovah's Witnesses, tell me, because I know somebody here is going to remember this, I've gone through this before, how do we know that the New Testament was not written originally in Hebrew or in Aramaic? How do we know that? Every time one of those words is used, it's given in a translation. That's right. It says, which in the Aramaic means, or which in the Hebrew means. And it does this in all of the Gospels. It does it in the book of Acts. Anytime it says, like, Gabbatha, which in Hebrew, actually it's Aramaic, but anyway, um, which in the Hebrew language means, and then it says. And then the same thing with uh, Golgotha, right? Which, um, okay, so you've got these words, and then you've got... Um, what does it say? Little girl arise, right? Mm -hmm. and it, but it says it in, yeah, Talita, Talita, Kumi, which is not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Okay, so we can take that out of the original for the New Testament. Anyway, he said in, Jesus would have spoke Aramaic to the people of Israel. He also spoke Hebrew, no problem there, but that was not the lingua franca. The New Testament, or the people in Israel at the time of the New Testament writing, was Aramaic, okay? And people don't like to hear that because they get into these Hebrew roots movements and stuff. But it, this is Aramaic, and he would have spoken Aramaic. Talitha kumi, right? Okay, so it says after that, which is translated means, means little girl rise or whatever, okay? And so because it says that, and because those words, which is translated, are there, either those are inserted and they're not part of the word of God, or it was written in Greek, and it was. All of them are written in Greek. We know that. There's no need to argue it. People will deny that because they want to believe what they want to believe. But now that we've got that uh, um, settled, it was not written in Hebrew, it was not written in Aramaic, it was written in Greek. Okay, And then people will go so far as to say, well, this was a Catholic conspiracy to change the... Crazy what people get into. There's a common sense way of looking at the Bible, and then there's Goofy. And people get into Goofy and they want to stay there. Don't get into Goofy. It was written in Greek, there's no doubt about it, it's indisputable, but the Jehovah's Witnesses will say that their translation of the Bible came out of the original languages, okay? And what do they do? They have taken the name Lord when it suits them, and they change it to Jehovah, okay? In the New Testament, to Jehovah, right? And they, they will, throughout the New Testament, they have corrupted it. Okay, but what do they do? They cite these these texts, and they have little footnotes down. I always read the footnotes. One of them is a, a, a translation of the Greek into Hebrew by a guy named Shem Tov. Does anybody here heard of Shem Tov? Shem means name, Tov means good, Shem Tov, the good name. He was a Hebrew guy, a, a, a Jewish guy, and he wrote this translation of the New Testament as a polemic against Christianity. It was an argument against Christianity. He made a Hebrew translation of it. And guess which one suits their desire? Shem Tov. So they go and they say Shem Tov, and they say that this is the original. But it was translated from the Greek. Right. And so it can't be the original. And then they have another couple of 
uh, um, documents as well that they have translated. And right at the top of them, it says translated out of the original tongues for Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> and the original tongues, they acknowledge are Greek. And they translate it into Hebrew to witness to the Jews. And what do they do? They choose this instead of the original. When the translation that they made, these people that they cite says right on the beginning, translate out the original tongues, meaning the Greek. And so this is what the Jehovah's Witness has done. And the people don't look into these things and they believe this lie that the translation is actually more correct than the... It can't be because it came from Greek. It didn't come from Hebrew, but they're citing the Hebrew because it fits their idea of saying Jehovah instead of Lord or whatever. Um, so, that's a problem. But that will not be a problem, even though it is what you asked. Even though that is a problem with their translations, and even though they've got them snookered from that perspective, if they just go to Isaiah, even in their crummy translation, and then they go to the New Testament and they highlight them, they will see what the apostles were saying, that this is the fulfillment of Jehovah God incarnate, if they're willing to look. And so that's my answer to the people of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. Yeah, I got saved reading the Jehovah's Witness. There you go. It's possible. Because every time I picked it up, I said, God Whoever you are, please Reveal guide me. me. Help me know you. Help me not be misled. And I got to the point where I thought, I don't know who wrote these footnotes. I'm not going to read them anymore. Yeah, because they're they're completely lies. They're completely convoluted. And now the words that they used to insert, which they would bracket. You know, the King James Version, an inserted word is italicized. In the first edition of the New World Translation, they were bracketed. Colossians, it says, by him all other things were created, right? meaning they inserted that word. They don't even put the brackets around anymore. They're just so utterly corrupt that they, they just says this is the word of God. But you can come to know God even through a bad translation like the NWT, okay? So I hope that answers at least some questions for those people that have real valid questions and, and I want them to know that it's not their fault if their family doesn't come to the Lord because they're trying. It's because people don't want to know. They want to stay in the pit they're in. Okay, let's go on. Um, uh, so, a statement. Yes. I say this guardedly. Your chair is not. Oh no, it's not. It's not wired because it, the the thing broke. So that's the chair over there, and uh, that was anyway. Okay. Anyway, no, it's not. Uh, it's okay. it's not wired. So no need but to yes, panic. thank you. No. Uh, we what he did is he just moved the camera back a little bit, and so they can see this and this until he comes back to Sarasota and he can fix it where it'll oh, work okay. again. Yeah, so thank you, because otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, okay, I'll read the last sentence, and I'll read it and start from there. Paul says that these people have become foolish because of such things. But there is also the foolishness of denying that God exists. A modern deep thinker and atheist is Richard Dawkins. During one filmed interview, he actually said that he believed that maybe aliens had seeded life on planet Earth. I don't know if you saw that, the, uh, the movie by, what's the guy that, um, um, uh, Ben Stein, who did the uh, movie about um, evolution, remember? Ben Stein from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yeah, yeah. Anybody? Yeah. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, okay, you got it. Anyway, he did a movie on evolution. It was very good. It was very well thought out, and he interviewed this guy. And Dawkins, this great thinker, said, well, I think that probably we were seeded by aliens. Well, what's the problem with that? I'll explain it right here. He says, um, this supposed wide thinker of the atheist community simply pushed the origins of life back 
One step. That's right, just one step. But he could give no ultimate answer for where the aliens then came from. In his futile attempt to deny the obvious, he made himself look like the moron that he had become. That's exactly what he's done. He's proven that he's a moron by simply saying, and it's impossible for, uh, that goes back to the 12 first principles, it is impossible for a created being to create anything. Okay, that's logically, we can defend that, and I'll do the 12 first principles eventually in the book of Romans, uh, because we did it in the book of Acts, we'll do it again. But once you see it, you will say, now I understand. A contingent being cannot create another contingent being. It is impossible. Logically, you can just simply think it through. They're not willing to do that. Okay, um, his lack of religion is his religion. I'm talking about Dawkins. And he is spreading the inane message to a world hungry for anything except the truth. Life application. Here we are. Will we give the credit for our existence to the creator or to a part of the creation? Will we acknowledge that we are wise by acknowledging his wisdom? What does it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning, beginning of, wisdom. of wisdom. That's right. His wisdom. Or will we prove ourselves morons when we shut our hearts and minds to the truth? Be wise, stand on the obvious. In him, we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28, as cited by Paul when quoting Epimenides in the, the uh, poem Creatia, or the creation. Okay, so there you go. We got 20 minutes, we can do one more verse, unless we have a question. No question. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, I'll read it from the New King James Version. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, that tree that Isaiah was describing, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Okay, so like he's going back to the ark, right? The ark of Noah, and he's got the little creeping things and all these things that are recorded on the ark, and he's saying, well, I'm going to make one of these, my God. When it was Noah that made the ark at the direction of God for saving all of those things. Anyway, um... Verse 23, as Paul noted in the previous verse, which is a part of this sentence, professing to be wise, they became fools. The reason this happened is based on the logical sequence of events which preceded it. As man rejects God, the knowledge of him, meaning God, must be replaced with something. All vacuums look to be filled. That's right. All vacuums look to be filled. Okay? Um, so... Uh, these people, wise in their own eyes, became fools and trade what is glorious for what is ignoble, what is of highest value for that which perishes, of what is holy for that which is profane. And this happens all the time in the world. It happens, in, you know, I, I pick on the left because the left is so disgusting, but this happens on the right too. It's just that the right hasn't gone that far yet. But eventually, if we don't get a repentance or, or a national calamity to bring us back to where we are. It's going to happen on the right, too. The whole world is going to go down the suicide highway. And it's inevitable. It is going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen. When it will be, we don't know. We can speculate that we're close to the end times because Israel's back in the land. And they are really, you know, key to what's going on in the world. But um, it is going to happen worldwide. And there will be very... I, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say there will be very few people that turn away from this, but that's not true because there is the, in the book of Revelation, you've got a group called the, no, not them, the great white multitude, okay, yeah, the 144,000 are sealed by God, but there is a great white multitude who are going to be martyred for their faith, 
okay, they are going to know that this is the wrong thing. All right, so there are going to be people that will come through the tribulation period either losing their head and being resurrected at the first resurrection, which the second death has no hold over them, or maybe, by God's grace, I don't know how many are going to make it through that are actually believers to the, uh, through the tribulation period. That's all speculation. But the nations will be brought before the Lord at the end times, and uh, those who weren't believers that are still alive will probably be given the chance to be believers. I don't know. I mean, it just it, we, we can debate that all day long, but there is going to be a great white multitude that will be willing to say, I'm not following this path. But, um, uh, let's see here. Paul gives four categories of idolatry, each more base than the next. First man changes the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Man was created in God's image, which was back in Genesis chapter 1, first page of the Bible, okay, chapter verse 26. And so in ignoring God, he moves to the next visible part of the creation in worship. He worships himself. And in the glory, in, in order to glorify himself, he makes an image of himself. If you see what's happening, God created man in order to bring himself glory. By creating a sentient being who can appreciate the rest of his creation and also fellowship with him. Man was intended to glorify God through thanks and praise. Okay, that was back in verse 21. Um, what is it? Uh, because they, although they did not know God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Okay, so that's what we were originally intended to do. However, the thanks and praise weren't forthcoming, which led to where man is now, exalting himself through self-deification and making an idol to his own image. He's attempting to emulate the God of creation in doing that. By taking this action, though he actually degrades his perception of the real God. And so what happens is the spiral continues. It goes a little further. The next step is to make images of the things that are beneath him. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Amazingly, not only is man now directing his worship toward creatures that are beneath him, he worships images of creatures. He has taken what is even below the lowliest creeping thing, inanimate objects such as wood, stone, and metal, and fashioned it with his own hands into something. And then he prays to the thing he has made, which resembles something beneath his own category of life. His mind is completely lost in idolatry. And funny, what I just read you from Isaiah 44, I said to read that here, so I got a verse ahead there. But anyway, um, and I typed this two, three, four years ago, so it's funny that uh, still on my mind all that time later, I guess. Anyway, um, idolatry isn't an affliction of ages past. That's what we need to remember, and that's what I just said a minute ago. It is found in religions throughout the world. I spent a lot of time in Japan. I spent time in almost every country of Asia, and it, it permeates this world. They can say we're not really worshiping that God. We're worshiping what it represents. Well, that's what the Roman Catholic Church does. I got that coming up in a sermon eventually, three or four more weeks, but it's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does. We're not worshiping stat Mary, uh, the statue of Mary. It's reminding us of Mary. Well, first off, you're not supposed to be worshiping Mary either or even praying to her. But secondly, that is not the way the, that God looks at you bowing down to an image. He takes that as an affront that you are not worshiping him. And that's going to become very clear in that sermon. But anyway, having said that, um, uh, worshiping images of Mary and worshiping the crucifix and you know they fashion these things and they say what the Roman Catholic Church does and, and you may know this who else was in the Catholic Church oh we got lots of hands okay 
what terms did they use for worshiping or servicing an idol? Honoring. Well, yeah, honoring, but there, there's a certain term that they use. Idol, idolulia, and idolatria. And that's adoration. what I'm looking Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, that's right. That would be more a translation of it. But the terms they use are idolulia and idolatria. Dulia means slave. It's a, it's a word that means basically servicing or being a slave to. And then you have latria, which is worship or praise. Okay, and they say, well, this is this one and not this one. We're actually just servicing this idol. We're not actually worshiping it. And so they try to make this distinction between the two by saying that uh, they have um, dulia and then they have hyperdulia, which is what they give to uh, Mary. Okay, she's worthy of hyperdulia, but it's not actually latria. Okay, and, they, uh, and I may have had that backwards, I think, but I'm pretty sure it's right. It's dulia is less than latria. But they, they try to make these distinctions by making up words. So what you just said, honoring, well, they'd say, well, we're just, we're not really honoring it, we're servicing it or some crazy thing. God doesn't look at it that way. And that is where religion, especially within Christianity, falls very flat. It's because the Bible is so explicit about those things. We are to worship the Creator. And the only image that we can have in our mind when we're worshiping the Creator would be Jesus because he's a man, because he is fully God and he is fully man. All right, we're worshiping God because He is the God Man, but we've got to be careful with even that. That we understand that when we are presenting Jesus, we are presenting Him as the God Man. Because somebody asked, like I said, about the uh, the Trinity, and uh, it was in relation to Job's witnesses, and they say, well, that's you know this and that and one thing and another. And they, you have to be very careful and very clear when you're explaining the Trinity. And we'll, like I say, we'll go through that again. We'll do it as we're going through the book of Romans, but you have to be precise with that because even the smallest little change in what you're saying will lead somebody down this path or that path or you've got uh, Arians, which is basically what the Jehovah's Witness are, and you've got the uh, uh, all these different groups of people just because of a single maybe word in a sentence. So be careful if you're describing the Trinity and um, uh, the best thing to do is to just make sure that you stand firm on the fact that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He's fully man. He's fully God. Okay, there's no separation between the two. There's no overlap of the two. And we can go through that again, and we will, but we're not going to do it today. Um, anyway, um, so, um, oh, no, I'm not done. I thought I was done with my comments here. Okay, so, um, uh, idolatry isn't an affliction of the ages past. It is found in religions throughout the world today, and it is found in every human heart at one time or another. Anything which replaces our devotion to God becomes an idol, and therefore we must protect against falling in this trap. What is the very last words of the book of 1 John? Little children, keep yourselves, keep yourselves from idols. That's right. This is something that Christians are not immune to. He would not have written that unless he meant for us to be aware of this as well because anything can become an idol. Your puppy can become an idol if you if you care too much about it. You can make an idol out of your wife. You can make an idol out of sex. You can make an idol out of anything. And it can happen without you even realizing it. And that's why John warned, little children, speaking to believers, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, the Bible's wonderful advice in Hebrews 12.2, my favorite verse of the Bible, will help us to keep from straying. What is it? Hebrews 12.2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And right behind that is Hebrews 3.1. I like Hebrews 12.2 because I'm a visual person. But Hebrews 3.1, let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. 
If you mix the two of those together, your thoughts and your eyes, you're never going to go wrong. But personally, I just want to keep my eyes on them all the time. I just want to see the beauty of the Lord always. Okay. Um, do you read... I hope nobody here answers yes, and you don't have to answer out loud anyway, but I hope nobody answers yes to this. And I can't tell you how appalling it is to see this posted on people's Facebook posts every day. Do you read horoscopes? Okay. Do you knock on wood in hopes of maybe getting favor? When you break a mirror, do you even in a kidding manner say, oh, that's bad luck? Giving credit to any created thing for chance or destiny demonstrates a wrong attitude toward the creator who has written our destiny. You know what's been bugging me lately? What's that? Good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm going to say that a zillion times. It's like, you know, I, and I should. No, you shouldn't. And I, I tell you what, my friends will often say, uh, you know, um, uh, wish me luck. They'll say that in post to me. I had a friend do that a couple days ago, and I always say, I'll wish you blessings. How about that? And I hope that they get what I'm saying, because I'm trying not to be over, you know, I, I, I don't want to be condemning to them. Yeah. But at the same time, I try to redirect that and say, you know, maybe this would be better. Because they know that I, I wish people blessings all the time. But when they say, wish me luck or, you know, something like that, I always try to redirect it without being accusation. But you're right. Good luck with that. And it's, you know. it's all knee jerk. I mean, like, I don't even think about But I want you to know that we can take that to unintended extremes. And people do this all the time. Mm -hmm. I get emails from people, just like the, the translations of the Bible, just like... People get off on little tangents to the point where you can't say anything anymore. If you say, oh, I was so fortunate I didn't get in that accident, they'll email you and they'll say, the word fortune comes from. Well, that wasn't my intent. You know what? And just because a word comes from something does not mean that it's what's on our mind. I did that with God a couple weeks ago. Remember, I said that the word God comes from a pagan source. But that's the word we have to describe God. Then people will say, well, you should be saying Elohim. Well, I'm not Hebrew, right? I'm not a Jew. So why would I say Elohim? Nobody's going to know what I'm talking about, and therefore I've completely removed him from the picture. Mm -hmm. I am a person that was raised in America, and I say the word God for the general God that we're speaking of. Now let me introduce him to you, right? But people get off on way too many tangents, so I don't want you to worry about that too much as long as you're not implying that it is because of luck. No. When you say something it's like... Not. It's like, okay, somebody says, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm having uh, uh, paint my house and uh, my... my Ladders like rickety. It's like, well, good luck. Good with luck that. with that. Yeah, like, you don't mean okay, anything by it. Actually, saying like, you know, may you have luck. Because yeah, that's right. Like, and take it with you and rub it against your head. And like, you know, like, that's right. And you, you, so I wouldn't worry about those things. I mean, it, there's a point where if somebody says, "Well, do you believe in luck?" Then you have to defend yourself. And that, you know, yeah. there's a time for all of those things. But we just have to be careful that we don't take things to unintended extremes. Because, like I said, I get emails like this all the time. I don't care what you say. Somebody, you say Jesus, and they say, please don't say Jesus, say Yahshua. All right? Well, his name wasn't Yahshua. It was Yeshua. Right? And so now I've got to correct him on that. And I say, well, what do you call Isaac? Well, I call him Isaac. Well, that's not his name. It's Yitzhak. Right? At what point do you say, we're just going to use the language that we speak? Okay? And we could do that with every single word in the Bible. Pretty soon, we all have to learn Hebrew and Greek in order to have a conversation with each other. No, I'm not going down that path. Yes? Charlie, um... We had a discussion at um, Youth for Christ about people talk about their kids all the time. Right. And, you know, kids are goats. Oh, yes. Baby goats. And our children are not. We don't want them to be kids. Right. 
We want them to be. The I had somebody say that to me on the beach one time too. Well, well, you know, I, I started thinking about it, and I started really correcting myself because I did I that for a while as well. I don't say kids. I know I did that I as, when I was out with my Bible questions answered on the beach years ago. I had a Mennonite come to me and I said, "Well, how many kids do you have?" And he says, "I don't have any kids." And then a couple of minutes later, he says, "Oh, I love my ten children." And I said, "What?" And he says, "Yeah." And then he went through that with me. Yeah. Well. I, I, I did that for about two years. I said, I'm not going to say kids anymore. And you know what? I don't care anymore because kid comes from a word. It comes from a German word, which doesn't mean goats. I know. Okay? People say it all the time. I understand. And so uh -huh. it, there's a point where we have to be able to speak. with. If we speak with intent and not meaning something that is inappropriate, like what you were just saying with good luck with that, then just say it. Well, I you know, correct anybody, right? But I have changed my speech, right? And I did that, and I used to never say kids. It, it, for years, I didn't say kids. I wouldn't call my kids kids, and now I do because I figure I'm just not. I'm not going to change who I am as a human being to satisfy somebody over their pet peeve. I went through that for months and months, especially with the prophecy update, because people like the prophecy updates. And you know how many people watch the sermons? Not many, but right. prophecy updates a lot of people. And they uh, weekly, I get these emails. Please don't say this. Please don't say that. Please don't. Oh and finally, I said, I'm not going to answer one more of those emails like that. I'm Charlie Garrett, and I'm going to speak the way I am. And you know what? If I have to justify myself, you've probably got the wrong guy. You know, you can go watch somebody else that fits your mold better because we have to communicate with our intent. But I do appreciate what you're saying, and I went through that as well. But, you know, if somebody says to me they're kids, I don't question them on it. I don't. Yes. Going back to good luck with that. Yeah. A customer that is, give me a break. Yeah, give me a break. Yeah. Which is really not not nice. Not not fair to God. I mean. Well, I don't know. I don't. I I I. I don't, I, I don't, anyway, don't, think, I don't either. Yeah, I, I have to know the source of what you're thinking when you say give me a break. Control. It's sort of like when you're complaining. You're really saying that God can't take care of you. Well, obviously, oh. saying that to another human being, it's like yeah. Well, see, with me though, I had no idea what "give me a break" meant to her, and so I say it all the time. So, I, once again, we're all following. We we, we all have to say what we say to communicate with people within a society. If something offends you, just don't say it. And if some something really offends you that somebody is saying, maybe tell them. But if it's something a pet peeve, we, we, there's a point where we have to let those things go. We 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 have to, and because. This is, you know, we have languages to communicate things. We got one more minute, and I got one more sentence. Um, uh, stand firm on giving him the praise, honor, and glory that he is due, and let your actions and words reflect his values at all times. And so, that's the the sum summation of all of it. Instead of taking away what God is due, which was right at the very beginning. Um, uh, where was it? Man knows God. Man fails to give God the glory that he is due. The natural result of failing to give God the glory that he is due is ingratitude. Ingratitude leads to futility of thinking. And then from that, our foolish hearts are darkened. If we just continuously, continuously with all of our heart and with all of our soul say, God, I want to give you the glory you're due, then that is going to keep us on the right path. Because you've got him on your mind. And if you've got him on your mind and you know that he exists and you know that he is there then you're going to hold yourself accountable before him. And that's the main thing. And it's hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not here to accuse anybody. Yeah. Yeah, but this is what we should do is all day long be thinking about God. And, you know, when I'm taking out the garbage, sometimes I'll be listening to a song on the way to, to uh, uh, the mall, and that song will be in my head. You know, one of these, I just turn on whatever music. That's I don't care what it is. 
And then I think when people are walking by, I don't want them to hear me singing that song, so I'll change, and I try to always sing a Christian song, you know? And then people kind of look at you like you're insane. But anyway, that's, I... Uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, because you you got to redirect and keep the Lord singing, on your heart. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, seeing as how you were the, the snippy one with the last uh, comment, you can pray us out. How's that? Okay. Not snippy. I don't know why I said the word snippy, but the... Go ahead. Attempted humor. Yes. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this day, this word that we are given, which does guide us. And, uh, Lord, it was a great point earlier made. And basically, the Bible says it is it's our guide. If we don't understand, dig into its meaning, take it context, Lord, uh, it, can, it can become a stumbling stone. But, Lord, if it were true to doing exactly what we did tonight. Uh, that path is straight. And, uh, guide that, uh, Lord, uh, we have many uh, prayers to our attention over the course of the week and day. Lord, uh, just um, we lay those at your will is perfect. Uh, sometimes we don't understand completely, but we do know that will is better than anything that we could dream up. And uh, it, those prayers that have come with us uh, to us, our attention uh, is within your will. Please uh, uh, have the people uh, find solace and peace and resolve for you. They do. They and us, all of us, turn and thank for that. And uh, Lord, just um, uh, know that we uh, praise you endlessly. The praise list is always. Mm. Far longer than your your prayer list, and uh, Lord, uh, just uh, know that at the top of that is your Son's sacrifice for us. Uh, we didn't deserve it; He was given to us as a gift. Simply uh, believing on who He is, what He's done for us, he raised from the dead, and we have that simple path of salvation. Lord, may we never forget that, and never stop telling others of it. And we pray of this, in your Son's holy name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, give me I one second to, to uh, close They what? I don't teach you to have me close <laughs> Let's see here. We're going to go to break, and then we'll say goodbye to everybody. Take just a second. Okay. There? Have a, there. Right back there. Have a wonderful week, okay? We love you. Bye-bye. <laughs>